You're listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, Conversations on the History of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a podcast series brought to you by ECD School of History and HistoryHub.ie. We're speaking today with Dr. Adrian Masters. Dr. Masters is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Texas at Austin's Institute for Historical Studies. He defended his dissertation in May 2018 at UT Austin's Department of History under the supervision of Professor Jorge Cañizares Esquerra. His research focuses on 16th century Spanish imperial bureaucracy, racial formations and state knowledge. He is currently co-authoring a book with Jorge Canizares Esquerra, entitled The Radical Spanish Empire, which is under contract with Harvard University Press. He is also working on his own book, tentatively titled Empire of Petitioners, Creating the Law in the 1500 Spanish Empire, and he has a forthcoming article in the August edition of the Hispanic American Historical Review entitled A Thousand Invisible Architects, Vassals, the Petition and Response System, and the Creation of Spanish Imperial Caste Legislation. Dr. Masters, Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So today, Adrian, we are discussing this Petition and Response System that has been central to your work on Spanish Imperial Bureaucracy, part of what you call a responsive regime. That is, a largely passive state that relied almost entirely on reports and requests of a huge range of subjects. And this arrangement, you argue, enabled the participation of almost anyone in the imperial system from the bottom up and constructed the profoundly productive bureaucratic and social mechanics of the Spanish Empire, which incubated phenomena we associate with modernity today. Now, the Spanish conquest and settlement of the New World has often been dismissed historiographically as something other or anomalous in the histories of empire. And that is to say, It differs from the traditional narratives of the British or French experience in that it has appeared to be comparatively backward, cruel, savage and stained with a cumbersome and reactionary Catholic ideology that has been represented with disdain in these traditional narratives. Now, quite aside from this rather one-dimensional and highly problematic casting of empire as the touchstone of civilization and progress, not to mention the concomitant oppression and savagery inherent in all of the European imperial experience. Uh, This traditional account of the Spanish experience in America belies an altogether uh, more complex and sophisticated organisation that has often been overlooked. And in fact, you declare, and I'm going to quote you here, the Spanish Empire evokes images of the Dark Ages. Backwardness, ignorance, cruelty, tyranny, absolutism, racism and superstition. Indeed, the conquests and the world it created embodies everything against which liberal modernity stands. Yet, what of the destructive arrival of the Spanish to America also created radical modernities that our liberal biases have made hard to perceive? Employing an armory of sociological and political categories designed to appreciate only victorious liberal narratives, scholars have missed a radical, participatory and intellectually profound world of this formative new world. End quote. So, before we talk about this uh, petition and response system, can you elaborate briefly on these quote-unquote, liberal narratives, as you describe them. What are they? And how have they managed to cast Spain as an abnormality in imperial encounters? And what have been the implications of this? Um, First of all, thanks for um, having me here, and thanks for the wonderful uh, introduction. So this um, whole issue about the way that Spain is represented is something that... um, that I've been working on that my professor, uh, my former professor Jorge Canizares Esguerra, and I have been thinking about for a long time, which is when you dig into the archive, you seem to find 
a lot of um, theological reflection, a lot of um, reflection on the meaning of truth and knowledge, a lot of scientific activity, a lot of um, participation of people in, in shaping the decisions of the state, and the list goes on and on and on. And of course, all of this is um, mixed up with, you know, um, accounts of horrible atrocities and, and all sorts of other things that we're quite familiar with about the Spanish. And so part of um, one of the things that uh, Professor Jorge Canizares Esguerra and I have been kind of teasing out is why is it that the archive is so jam-packed with this other story? And, and, and it's certainly not as well represented in a popular sense. Um, in a scholarly sense, we, of course, uh, anyone who's deeply familiar with the historiography will, will recognize um, both sides of the coin and all the shades in between. And yet there seem to be, I think, these old, very old inheritances of uh, a 19th century Anglo style of writing in which um, certain topics are downplayed um, to a great extent at, at the expense of others. Um, I'm going to just throw out a very uh, clear example. So I'm working on the petition and response system, and my key contention is that people could write the king and the Council of the Indies, which was the um, a, a group of ministers who advised the king and his legislative decisions. Um, the only person we know of as a you know, around the world to have done this um, is the friar, the Dominican friar Bartolomé Las Casas, who um, agitates and constantly petitions and bangs on the king's door until finally he manages to create these pro-Indian policies. Now, um, kind of what I'm arguing is that everyone was doing that. Everyone was doing that. And people we don't expect. We have self-described mulatos from Mexico in the 1570s producing, uh, prompting a number of reforms on stuff that didn't necessarily even concern just them, things that concerned Indians, things that concerned the treatment of slaves, um, the construction of hospitals. They're asking for hospitals and they're, they're successfully passing these reforms. And then once you dig into this whole world, of course, it's not just this case of these mulatos in 1570s Mexico. It's um, Indian leaders in Quito. It's um, self-described negros y negras, black men and women from Panama. Um, they're writing economic laws. They're writing religious laws. Um, and not only are they writing them, but they're phrasing them because the ministers in the Council of the Indies are pressed for time and they're transplanting successful petitions into decrees. So we don't now we don't even really know what the word of the state is, what if, if the state is trying to impose its vocabulary or if really vassals are imposing their vocabulary on the state. Um, but so one of the questions that that has driven my research is why don't we have a clear vision of, of this? And one of the reasons is in the 19th century, the the British democracy, parliamentary democracy, was consolidating itself. They had a major print culture, and they controlled the narrative of what Spain was, of what Mexico was, what Peru was, and these countries were in crisis. And they were not succeeding as democracies, at least in most cases they weren't. So um, this, along with um, this, the Industrial Revolution and other things, gave the impression that Spain was kind of stuck and that the former Spanish imperial uh, regions, which were becoming nations, were stuck. And now, of course, we see a different story that's much more complex. There's a kind of narrative of Brazilian modernity and Mexican modernity and all these other modernities that we see emerging. But when it comes to the colonial era, that seems to be, uh, there seems to be a universal agreement 
that something went wrong, that intellectual culture was stifled, that um, economic growth was was uh, extraordinarily cruel, and all these other elements. And it's it's shaped the way that we talk about these societies. And it's also kind of shaped the questions that we ask, which is a bigger problem, um, because we also jump over questions like, hey, okay, they didn't have parliamentary democracy, but maybe they still had political participation. Maybe little old ladies could still participate in politics. Maybe little old ladies participated as much or more in politics in the Spanish empire. We're not quite sure. Um, But the point is that we have to start asking these questions and uh, changing our expectations when we study the Spanish empire so that just because they don't have parliamentary democracy or the specific patent system of the British, that we can't discount that they had science, we can't discount that they had um, political participation. So um, so we're, we're not necessarily taking the approach of the Spanish being entirely a failure. We acknowledge that it's a complicated uh, region with a very difficult history, but we don't approach it from the point of view of failure and explaining failure. So can you talk about the way your work then challenges these existing narratives about how the Indies were remotely governed from Spain? Yeah, so one of the... Um, Cornerstone, um, I would say, national points of pride in a lot of Northern European countries, the United States, England, and then the kind of Anglosphere, you know, Australia, New Zealand, is their um, dedication to giving people representation in government so that you can elect your representative. And the, the, the a very common narrative, it's not the only narrative, but it's probably the, still the dominant one, is that the Spanish take a different path starting in the 1520s. Some, you know, people date this differently. Sometimes they say 1400s, sometimes they say 1500s. The most common is to say that um, the Habsburgs were, when they inherited the Spanish monarchy, they crushed um, basically dis, uh, the, the ability of non, non-crown agents to determine laws and that sort of thing. Um, so what I found is, um, it's true that that in a in a sense you don't get this vibrant culture of parliamentary representation where cities elect their representatives and then the representatives go to the crown and they negotiate. It's true that that um, is certainly weaker in Spain over and it weakens over time. And um, there is a scholarship that says it it didn't go away entirely and that it remains somewhat powerful. However, that kind of for me misses the point because what I was looking at is that there are these um, many, 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 many royal decrees, which the council issues for just for the new world, 110,000 roughly. It's a very rough guess. But we're talking um, almost 100,000 or maybe maybe it's 200,000. We're not quite sure. But we're talking a lot of laws. And, And, you know, this obviously didn't happen through any sort of parliamentary system that was even more limited in the new world. So where does this come from? And that was the the or that was the big question that I was asking my work is, you know, how could the crown be issuing all these decrees about, you know, they, they haven't been here. They don't um, have such a strong vision of what to do with the Indies anyway, even if they had been there. So my, my work, and it's a whole body of work. It's, it's actually two different books at this point um, is trying to argue that there's a lot of bottom up political activity in the Spanish empire. And Expanding that a little bit further, there's bottom-up scientific activities, bottom-up intellectual activity. People are proposing 
all sorts of things to the council, that's where these decrees are coming from. And the people that are doing this, are it's a broader crowd than we assume. And so right now I'm working on, I'm co-authoring a book with Professor Jorge Canizares Guerra, as you've mentioned, and then I'm working on turning um, my dissertation into a book. Um, it's tentatively called Empire of Petitioners. And specifically in this latter book, um, I'm showing that decrees, royal decrees, are inspired, they're prompted by petitions, and they're phrased by them. And this means that we have to do some thinking about where their categories come from. Specifically, I'm interested in racial formation. Where do you get terms like mulato and mestizo? Why, why are those appearing in these decrees if the Council of the Indies and the king don't particularly care about these people and they also don't particularly know about these people? And the answer is a whole bunch of people are petitioning for them and we can identify them if we have the right methodology. So the book, um, in its current form, is aiming to provide that methodology so we can understand the whole world of petitioning, how people formulated their decrees, their, their petitions on the ground, how they sent them through the mail, how the council processed these decrees, how they phrased them, and how they returned and how people tried to implement them. Okay. And for listeners who might not be aware, in reference to... Uh racial categories. Uh, mulatto is, of course, uh, and mestizo are both mixed race categories. They, mestizo, of course, being uh, specifically um, half Spanish, half uh, indigenous, and mulatto being half Spanish, half African. So the Castilian system of governance in the Iberian Peninsula was, as you note, predicated on three types of justice. Um, what were these concepts? So a very important part of my book consists of distinguishing between different um, types of bureaucracy inside the Council of the Indies. Um, in a lot of the historiography, we know that there were court cases that were elevated to the Council of the Indies. Uh, so there'd be, you know, it's like court cases today. You have um, two um, conflicting parties and they seek resolution before a court. One of the misconceptions, I think, that I found was that these court cases don't produce laws of any kind. They produce something called a sentencia, which at least in the 1500s is a one-off decision. It's a piece of paper that goes, there's a copy that goes to each party, and it includes an order of, you know, cease and desist, or, you know, fulano is right, fulano is wrong. And then that's it. It doesn't get put in a big book. People don't consult that case ever again. So justicia, court cases, are not the origin of royal decrees. They can't be. Um, which sent me on a quest to find out, okay, so where do these things actually come from if they're not coming from court cases? And that leaves two really important types of paperwork. Um, one, and, and they both generate legislation. Um, one is gracia, which is um, a certain type of um, privilege legislation or pardon legislation. So, you know... Um, Pizarro gets uh, Indian tribute for the rest of his life would be a gracia decree. And there's a whole series of petitions and very, with very specific rules for submitting a request for Indian tribute or submitting a request to, be, to get a, a 200 peso peti uh, pension at the end of your life or, or that sort of thing. Um, but of course, um, those 
petitions are for specific people, they belong to family members or individuals or towns, and they sit in your archive and you use them when you need them, but they don't apply to society in general, and they don't apply to government actions. So then we know that we have the justicia court cases that don't produce decrees. We have the gracia paperwork, which produce decrees, but they don't produce general rules or government actions, which leaves a third category, which I think has caused quite a lot of confusion um, among the historiography. And this is the gobierno channel. This is very important. The gobierno channel is the simplest and most elemental paperwork channel. And it's the channel through which petitioners request that the king issue laws. And it's also the channel through which the king produces these laws and returns them to the new world. And so these gobierno petitions and the decrees that they produce are the focus of my work. So to what degree with these concepts of justicia, gracia, and gobierno, or justice, privilege, and government, I suppose, to what degree were they extended to the new world? So you find in the local institutions in the new world, um, the local institutions that uh, dispense justice and privilege and administration, you find that they are mirrored. Um, so the, the new world uh, has a number of courts, magistracies called audiencias, which we in historiography oftentimes call high courts. And those had judicial powers for the most part, only uh, barring exceptional circumstances, these judges didn't issue administrative or um, kind of um, enforcement type uh, laws. And they didn't issue legal principles in general. They just adjudicated. Um, however, later on, you get uh, viceroys with, who do have the authority to respond to gracia and gobierno petitions with gracia and gobierno legislation as well. So that means that you have um, kind of a, a perfect mirroring system in a way. Um between the King and the Council of the Indies radiating down onto the institutions of the New World. However, um, the New World was a place where the Viceroy could suddenly fall ill and die, and a High Court judge might overstep his boundaries, and there's all sorts of moments in which this paperwork trinity gets blurrier in the New World than it does up at the very upper echelons of power uh, back um, in the court. And what kind of impact did the imposition of these new systems of uh, governance have on the native polities in America, particularly in the urban centres in Mexico and Peru, which, you know, previously had their own complex systems of governance before the conquest? Yeah, um, the, the issue of the extent to which um, Mexica and Inca systems look like this is tricky because the Spanish, of course, saw the system in the Aztec and Inca systems. They saw a system of privilege uh, like Gracia. They saw a system of adjudication like Justicia. Um, as for Gobierno, that's a little bit more mysterious because we don't know, as far as I know, of a body of kind of responsive legislation in either the Aztec or the Inca the situations. However, um, my sense is that, um, first of all, I think indigenous peoples understood this very early on, uh, specifically in uh, central Mexico and Peru, 
I think that it really um, wasn't a particular challenge for them to adapt. Now, the question of what they did with this system is complicated. Um, in the early years, um, you get a lot of justicia and gracia um, engagement among indigenous peoples. So a lot of the major royal families of the Mexica and the Inca are going to litigate and they're going to try to recover their lands. They're going to try to especially establish aristocratic privileges through the Gracia channel. And they do in large part. Only later in the 1530s and 1540s do you find them realizing that they can they don't have to work through the system by taking people to court or by asking for privileges. They can rewrite the system by going through gobierno and increasing their general status or arguing that certain Spanish behavior should be not allowed at all, um, arguing um, for new institutions or for old indigenous institutions they'd like to see come back in a certain form. Um, by the 1550s and 1560s, you see so much engagement by indigenous peoples in the petitioning system and in in many other elements of Spanish life, that you actually start to see so much kind of um, Hispanization. I mean, it might not be complete, but it's strategic and it's very important. And 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 actually, I think this petition response system played a major role in that Hispanization. And uh, Jose Carlos de la Puente Luna has a book out, um, Andean Cosmopolitans, which deals with this very well. Um, it shows that people, that, that uh, Peruvian indigenous peoples were hyper engaged with this with these three systems and that um, you know they went to live in the court with the king for extended periods of time got Spanish haircuts you know adopted Spanish dress and carried Spanish knives and guns and and so forth um, yeah so the question of how the petition and response system how these three branches of of paperwork impact indigenous peoples is extremely important and there's almost no uh, element of indigenous culture that was left untouched. Now you say that the new laws put in place by the Spanish here came from the ground up rather than the top down, which, you know, seems counterintuitive. Um, can you explain this? Um, yeah, as I mentioned before, the idea, the prevailing idea about the Spanish empire for a very long time, and it still persists in some assumptions today, is that this is a place where the king runs the show. It's absolutist, which means the king determines things he decides and maybe his ministers assist him and it's it's an it, you know laws are impositions onto the indies and and there's a top-down direction where the if you if you consider the top to be the legislators and the bottom to be the people who receive the legislation or are subject to the legislation it, it, it appears to be very top-down that's true in some small cases which i'm happy to talk about however if you look at the enormous amount of decrees which the king signs and the council phrases and sends to the indies they're not coming from the king or from the council they're approved by the king and the council but they're really coming from petitions from the bottom up and that could mean a whole range of things bottom up and the way that i think of it is you're not a legislator which means that technically the viceroy is on the bottom of the legislative balance because he's not issuing royal decrees. But also, it's also bottom-up in the sense that you have um, mulatos from Mexico City or um, negros y negras from, you know, black men and women from Panama and lots of indigenous people 
and uh, you know, poor Spanish uh, orphans, widows, you name it. Um, and and when you look at the the process through which the council approves these things, they they look at the petition, they say yes or no, and if they say yes, which is really quite common, as we can tell from the number of decrees, um, they very quickly, uh, you know, they change the, you know, they they take out the I and they make it a we and they change a couple grammatical things. And then they say, we agree with this. And they say, don't do this anymore to a specific authority. Or they say, this is now a general rule and they send it off. And so that's what I mean by um, ground up or bottom up. So in effect, uh, vassals of the Spanish crown wrote many of the empire's laws. Um, Can you maybe give us some examples of uh, this system at work? Uh, Like what kinds of requests were typical? Um, How might they vary in nature, uh, depending on what type of person submitted them? Um, sure. So I'm going to think of a, of a couple examples of um, vassals from the margins who are producing decrees. Um, one case that I looked at very much in depth was a group of part Indian, part Spanish um, priests or people who were about to become priests in the 1570s and 1580s Peru. Uh, what happens is in 1578, uh, the Augustinian order sends their um, agent to Madrid with a petition. And one of the one of the requests is, can we please not ordain any more part Indian, part Spanish people? And they call them mestizos. That's the category that they use to describe these people and to exclude them. Uh, what happens is when that decree is implemented in Peru by authorities, um, these part Indian, part Spanish people unite, and they don't particularly want to be mestizos, but that's what the decree says. So they make a massive petition. It's got a nice little one-page cover letter, but it's got a huge testimony in their favor. And they send this off with an agent. And when you compare that agent, a mestizo agent, I should add, um, when you compare the text um, of the request that the mestizos be allowed into the priesthood, when the crown approves that, it's the same text. And so, and, and that's an example also of the types of people you can sometimes find petitioning. Sometimes you find, um, like I said, um, uh, black women in Panama saying we can't pay a one silver peso as a tax every year. Uh, we're just too poor. And then the decree is issued um, in, in response to this saying, you know, we received your letter from the 14th of August of whatever, 1576 or something. Um, and sometimes it says you're right and that's unfair. Sometimes it says we want to do an investigation to follow up. Um, in terms of what requests were typical, it's, there's an extraordinary range, like the number of participants that, that are engaging in this. There's also an almost infinite number of topics. Um, anything from an indigenous person complaining that cows are trampling his plants to um, someone saying we should ban an entire group of people from the priesthood, for example, to um, uh, a Spanish governor saying, can we please uh, sail a ship um, from Chile to the Philippines, that sort of thing. So it's really a range of really big things and really small things. And this is a problem of classification because you get some things that are so small that they almost seem like privileges or one-off government actions. And then at the other extreme, there are things that set in principles for the next hundreds of years. Um, so 
lots of people submitting decrees on a huge range of topics, um, which go from the tiniest, most minute thing to the biggest, biggest, biggest issues. And they're all together in these law books, um, kind of indistinctly. And the Spanish crown doesn't theorize them as being different. They treat them as if it's all one body of, of rules. Now, what's surprising to me is that these petitions, um, you know, which became laws, uh, came from such a wide variety of sources from viceroys to slaves. And this system, it appears to be ostensibly very inclusive, but um, is it really as inclusive as it seems? There were all sorts of issues which prevented it from being fully inclusive. In theory, the Crown was truly actually dedicated to listening to any reports that were coming in, any petitions. They had valuable information. They gave the Crown legitimacy. And, it, you know, it created this image of the king uh, as, a, as a kind of man of the people in a way who listened to widows, who listened to orphans. And that was very much part of the reason why he was a popular figure in Spain and in the New World. So, however, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of issues which prevent it from being fully equitable. Um, one of the issues is just that it costs a small amount of money to petition. And that meant that um, viceroys, who had a lot of money, relatively speaking, could send weekly reports practically. Not quite weekly, but they could send many, 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 many hundreds of pages every year in requests. And the same goes for uh, wealthy Spaniards or um, powerful bishops. However, um, those kind of elite groups in the Indies, um, it's difficult to use the word elite. I mean, I guess the conquistadors are elites. The viceroys are kind of an elite officer court, but they're not the same groups. Um, they're petitioning uh, constantly, but the crown was also very sensitive to that fact. It knew that, that they were dominating the process and didn't want them to dominate the process. So, it, for example, it gave friars a lot of say. It gave merchants a pretty decent say. And if Indians ever petitioned, which was much rarer than viceroys, clearly, um, they took it very seriously. Oh, here's an Indian. Here's, these are the people we're concerned about, and, and, and they're here in the court, or here's a letter from them. Um, we have to pay special attention to these. So there's sort of a balancing act between all of these different groups, um, priests, uh, lawyers, um, um, notaries, uh, you know, ship captains, uh, slaves, uh, all sorts of people are engaging in this. And, and, but though, and while it's in different proportions, the proportion of the incoming petitions um, might not tell us very much about how much the crown valued their input. More or less, um, from a theoretical perspective, the crown valued all vassals. And, and you find um, people, uh, former slaves from China petitioning and um, groups of impoverished uh, black petitioners from throughout uh, New Spain and so forth. So leading on from this then, is there any sense that the types of responses in Spain uh, to petitions differed? according to somebody's social class or caste? Yeah, this is a very complicated question. It doesn't have a clear answer. There certainly wasn't a kind of um, intelligentsia class that had a special special access to the king's ear, a group that the king trusted, uh, the council trusted blindly. Um, they, they, part of the problem is, um, you know, for 
the crown. Um, slaves were lowly, and that implied something that they took into consideration when they read the petition. They probably weren't very likely to um, read a slave's major proposals, or you know, if someone says, "Hey, why don't we just leave the New World in general?" They're not going to take that very seriously. Um, and the vassals knew that, and they adjusted their petitions accordingly, and they, in a way, self-censored themselves. That's a problem. Another uh, issue is that different groups in, this is an ancien regime society in which groups have privileges. And in the Spanish New World, the council was desperate to not let conquistadors become this dominant aristocracy. And so I actually think they're probably at the biggest disadvantage of them all. The conquistadors really um, bungle their reputation in Peru when they have a major civil war. They kill a viceroy. Um, and they just generally mismanage the place for decades. And you can see the council is not favorable towards them at a certain point, and that friars are, are, are um, more successful, that Indians are more successful than the conquistadors. Um, and of course, uh, the reason why this, the crown was doing that was to balance the groups. And so that's a really tricky question of who... Um, dominates the process, who, they, who the, the council favors. The documents that they produce are hostile, that, that, that the council produces for each other, I should say. Their internal communications suggest they really dislike the conquistadors and that they sometimes distrust individual people who have caused a lot of trouble. Those tend to be officials. Pretty much everybody else would have been, their proposals would have been carefully considered, or at least somewhat carefully considered. The production of such a volume of petitions in Spanish America assumes at least some degree of literacy among those involved. Is this an accurate assumption? Or um, to what degree were these vassals actually capable of producing their own petitions? So one of the things about the Spanish Empire is that most people um, don't even speak Spanish. And then there's the additional problem of literacy. So the vast majority of the New World, of course, is speaking indigenous languages, especially um, Nahuatl and Mayan and Zapotec, Mixtec, um, Quechua, Muisca, and all these other languages. So, um, so it's a, a double problem of uh, widespread illiteracy and the fact that a lot of people just don't speak Spanish. So among the Spanish population, you're going to get 10 to 15 percent of people being quite literate, and that includes um, 75 percent of Spanish men of age are going to be um, quite literate, capable of writing a letter. Spanish women are going to have a far drastically lower numbers as with Indians and recently arrived Africans who might, who are generally enslaved. Um, so the, the, the way around that in this society was for there to be, um, translators everywhere in every government institution. There were translators on certain days. They offered their services for free because they, they had a royal salary. And then you have an, a, a group of procurators. And procurators are these kind of um, legal agents. They're not trained as lawyers, but they're, they're um, very literate. They know how the government works. They know how to petition. And they help make petitions sometimes. And then, of course, there's, there are all these um, other institutions. You know, friars help Indians petition. Um, a priests might, and then the people who are part Indian, part Spanish, and who have learned how to read and write very well, are also going to participate. And in the end, actually, this system is relatively comprehensive. 
it covers a very large um, segment of uh, Spanish um, New World society, but also geographically, it's very well represented to the point where you have Chinese merchants petitioning with their translation appended, um, going to the king. Um, so uh, the production of petitions was not entirely um, defeated by these um, language problems and these writing problems. So these petitions of Gobierno, Gracia, and Justicia, then, um, they seem to have created an endless loop of communication, which allowed for the development of a culture of writing, and which you have referred to as the lettered marketplace. Um, can you explain what you mean by this? So going off of what, what I mentioned before is, you know, you go to a Spanish city or you go to a port or you go to a, a plaza anywhere um, in the Spanish New World, more or less, um, and you're going to have these procurators and these assistants and these solicitors of various types um, eager to help people petition. And sometimes it was for a small fee. Sometimes it was for free, depending on if um, the crown had salaried officials there. So there were these procurators, uh, procuradores de pobres, who specifically were to deal with the poor and those who, um, for one reason or another, couldn't access money. So if you were in jail or something like that, you could still petition. Um, and, and actually, you know, these people are quite literally part of the, the physical marketplaces of the Spanish Empire. You know, it's kind of a, the marketplace can be a metaphor of thinking about how accessible um, petitioning was and how hierarchical it was. Clearly, someone with more money is going to produce longer, more elegant petitions. You know, as in a marketplace, some people have more, some people have less. But also, physically, you go to the marketplace and these guys are in the marketplace. They're, they're um, in the, at the front doors of the local high courts. They're walking around looking for customers. And this meant that even though this is a very hierarchical world, these kind of marketplaces were open to the poor, the rich, and everybody in between. And how does this compare to other European-based systems of communication in the early modern era then? So the Spanish petition and response system is actually based on very ancient, truly ancient petitioning systems. And you find them in you know, um, ancient Assyrian societies, you find them in ancient Egypt, you find them in ancient Rome. And of course, the Spanish case is strongly influenced by the Roman one. But um, it's important for readers to remember that um, the French, the, the papacy, the Italian states, the Ottomans, the Safavids, um, you know, Fatimids, all these other societies had petition and response systems, and they had um, their own lettered marketplaces, really. And in terms of um, systems of communication proper, that's where you're going to get something a little bit more unique, because it's one thing to get a letter from Egypt to Istanbul. It's one thing to get a letter even from, um, you know, the, the Iranian countryside to um, Isfahar, the, the capital. Um, it's much more difficult to get a letter from Chile or from the Philippines to, say, Brussels. That's really difficult, or to even just to Madrid. And th this is one of the things that makes the Spanish Empire so strange, is that the communication system was dreadful. It was horrible. I mean, we're talking, uh, one letter I found that went from the Philippines to Madrid took 1,555 days. And I've heard of some letters taking longer than that. 
I mean, the, the soonest you could expect was from Cuba, and there are these miraculous cases of a letter getting to uh, the king within maybe a month and a few days, which is pretty good. But in general, the communication system was a disaster, and there was really not very much the Spanish could do about it. Right. So speaking of this communication system, what kind of a journey might these petitions actually have then between their production, say, for example, in Mexico or in Peru or Chile, and their reception in Spain? Um, is there an average time for the submission of a petition and its final return and enactment in the Indies as a law? Yes. Um, so I haven't managed to crunch the numbers of how long it takes a decree to get from the court to the Indies. That's tricky because the documents don't generally reveal that. And you have to tease it out by reading the officials' responses. I received a, a decree from 11th of November, um, 1542. And, and then you say, oh, this letter is now 1544. Okay, that, and you can do it the math. But you have to read almost all of the official correspondence to get a sense of that. And that's really um, hard work. What I did manage to find was that sometimes the the petitions have obviously a date which the petitioner provides, and then the council notes when they processed it. So received on this day, answered on this day, or something to that effect. Um, using that information and general um, logistics data, I managed to build a, a kind of a database of how long these things take. So for example, um, from most Atlantic ports to Seville, you're talking about 43 days. So Cuba to Seville, you can count on it being read by then. That means that you're waiting at least three, four months as a petitioner to, to get back your response, because, of course, these boats then have to return, and that's a whole other ordeal. And presumably it would take much longer from somewhere like, say, Buenos Aires. Yes, and this is a major, major, major problem, especially if you take the inland route from Buenos Aires to Lima, which was the safe route. Um, so, yeah, the inland routes are a nightmare. Frankly, um, Mexico is an exception because it only adds four days travel to about a week. I think the maximum a letter would take to get to the coast from Mexico is about 10 days. So you add that 10 days to about 43 days for the, the Caribbean and you're going to get about 55 or so. And, and then there's the return. Um, now, for Colombia, it's very complicated because it's a river system for the most part. You have your coastal cities that behave like Caribbean cities, they are Caribbean cities, but then in order to get to Bogota or Tunja or all these other cities on the interior, you have to go up river when the decree is being delivered. And of course, down river when you're sending it out to the king. And, 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 and depending on what time of year it is, is it rainy season, is it dry season? Are you going towards Bogota or away? These things have crazy effects. And so yeah, for Chile and the Philippines, especially because of the long waits and, and because in the case of Chile, you had to go all the way up to Lima and then you had to go to Panama, you had to cross in Panama, then you had to wait for the boats to pick up the letters, all that stuff means that Chile is an average of 220 days to get to the court and the Philippines is 250 days. That is really something. Actually, and I, and I, I misspoke. It's, that's not the, Average, that is the best case. 220 for Chile and 254 Philippines are best case scenarios. That's an extraordinary amount of time. An interesting thing that happens, though, is that the communication system in the 1540s is working pretty well. Um, in the 1560s, it's working terribly. 
And by the 1590s, it's a disaster. Now, that's a little bit of a paradox. That's not how it's supposed to happen. I mean, you know, communications are better. There's more boats. The trails are cleaner and better kept in, in the New World itself. But what's happening is pirates have crippled the mercantile circulation. These boats used to be going freely from, say, Santo Domingo, which is today the Dominican Republic and Haiti, or from even uh, Buenos Aires, um, pretty much straight to Madrid. And, and those could be relatively limited. We're talking like, yeah, 30, 40 days kind of stuff. However, when there are pirates, you have to travel in a convoy, and the convoys were very slow. The convoys were always late, and the convoys could get stuck in hurricanes, which meant that if you ended up in on the Colombian shore uh, in the beginning of hurricane season, you had to stop. Or maybe all that silver and all that money and all these people were going to sink to the bottom of the ocean. And that meant the letters were also going to slow down. So you get a humongous uh, slowdown in the communication system. And there's one last thing I'm gonna add about the communication system, which I think is interesting, which is we think of legislators as the, the people in the fancy robes who sit in the palace and issue the decrees, or they sit in parliament and they you know, sign the laws. I actually think that we should consider a lot of the people who move these petitions to be co-legislators. They are participating in very crucial ways. It's a very complicated system, and if someone um, loses a letter, or if a boat sinks, or if a person gets robbed, or if a person gets killed, the law, the proposal for the law and the law that was to be will not exist. And so that means that we have to consider that there were a lot of Afro-descendants, a lot of indigenous men and women who were making this communication systems work in the interior, especially, but also in boats and, and the like. And, and um, part of my research is to kind of give them the credit that they deserve for making this petition and response system work, even though um, they they occupied a relatively small share of the petitioners, they were almost universally involved in transporting these documents. To what degree were laws governing indigenous peoples determined from the ground up then? Um, how perceptible were the voices of the natives themselves? So Indians petitioned um, quite a lot about their own communities, um, but they rarely petitioned um, speaking in the voice of a larger ethnic, pan-ethnic group across Indian um, uh, legislative platform. Um, also, because the viceroys were closer and more available, um, Indians tended to petition them instead. By enormous numbers, we're talking tens of thousands of successful petitions, which is really astonishing. When Indians do go to the crown, and they go by the hundreds, I would say, perhaps by the thousands, um, we see them th thinking mainly about their own communities. And, and, and this means that sometimes they're, um, very often they're accusing Spaniards of abuse. Sometimes they're um, trying to get friars out of their towns or getting priests out of their towns in favor of friars. And they're, they're also engaging in um, debates about how, how many taxes they should pay, about whether the Indian tribute system is fair or not. And they are um, engaging in these things. An issue, however, is that the friars from about the 1530s on assume this kind of paternalistic approach to Indians where they are constantly listening to Indians and they're petitioning for them. And they claim that, oh, the Indians came to us and they said this, and now we're saying this to the crown. Um, 
so there's kind of two routes which in, through which Indians shape legislation. Of course, everybody knew at the time, and a lot of readers would guess today, the friars are also using these because they know that Indian petitioners are, the, the, the crown respects them. Um, and so a lot of, there's a lot of ambiguity about whether we're getting the kind of, you know, um, if, if, if the Indian petitions actually reflect what Indians were asking for some of the time. And in my sense is that actually, yes, they did. But in some cases, it's very clear that there are friars who are playing politics. Some Indians will write the king and say, the other guys that just wrote are totally doing this because the friars made them, but we're not going to let that happen. So don't listen to that other letter that's coming in the mail. And what kind of jurisdiction might these decrees typically have? And what impact do you think this actually had for the legal and political system in the Spanish Indies overall? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a really, really challenging question. Um, you know, we're kind of late modern minds and we're searching sometimes for, um, you know, our idea of the law can be very diffuse, like a constitution, for example, or uh, laws passed by a parliament, which have, are binding throughout the the whatever system of government you're in, the entire polity. So in the Spanish imperial case, it's a lot messier than that, a lot messier. You'll have a decree that applies, it's a one-off decree, this one time disburse 4,000 pesos for this bridge. And that's a one-time decree. You can pretty much toss it away at that point. And other decrees will say nobody in the Indies is to have an, uh, an Indian slave. Those are very, they're, they're the same family of decrees, but they're enormously different. And so what you get is a huge range of, of gray zones. And because there's so many of these decrees and they're so unsystematic, they oftentimes contradict each other and that creates major problems. And so the friars will have a, a big old, you know, metal chest full of uh, six or 700 decrees and they'll go through and they're all about them and, and things that apply to them. And they'll bring them against the bishops to fight over a monastery or something. And it becomes a very complicated um, issue of everybody kind of having the uh, responsibility of determining the jurisdiction of the decree. That's really complicated. Um, normally, the decree will say this is directed towards the sheriff. This is directed towards the friar, such and such. Or this is directed towards the, the mulatos of Mexico City. But then the question is, where does that decree apply? And a lot of people say, well, the king liked that one for those mulatos over there. And there are some Indians in Quito who need that same law. So they make a copy of that law and they send it to the king and they say, you know, obviously you like that one. Why don't you do one over here? So the, there's a pressure from the bottom up sometimes to universalize and to extend the jurisdiction of these decrees. So I'm particularly interested in petitions sent to the crown outlining new technologies medicines, uh, scientific discoveries, uh, and so on. Are there many examples of these? Absolutely. You get um, a lot of gobierno petitions about mining and science, but really, if you look in the Gracia decrees and petitions, you're going to find, I want to say probably hundreds of scientific patents that... Um, are a little bit different from our notion of patents today. They're kind of like titles of aristocracy. They're phrased in the same way. The paperwork is the same. That's a very interesting thing because it shows that science is 
kind of um, sprouting through this aristocratic channel, which is not what we would expect to find it. And that's one of the things that Jorge Canizares and I will be working on in um, our book, The Radical Spanish Empire, is that, you know, in the liberal mentality, you look for science happening in cafes in the public sphere and people trading books. Here you're finding it, but you're finding it in this very secret manuscript um, aristocratic channel. But but uh, these uh, scientific breakthroughs are sometimes enormous. We're talking some of the most important scientific breakthroughs of the century are happening through the petition and response system, but specifically in the Gracia channel for the most part. And I mean, I'm going to just maybe list some examples of what these are. Um, you get um, deep sea diving inventions. You get um, mechanical inventions to lift boats out of the water. Uh, whole galleons that have sunk. Uh, they have these cranes to lift them out, and the crane system is patented. You get um, Indian um, dye makers and botanists saying, we should be able to be the only ones to produce these plants and these dyes. The Spanish should not be able to. This should be only for the Indians of the Yucatan, for example. And so, um, once again, it, it's uh, this very kind of ancien regime privilege-based notion, but but we're talking about scientific invention and, and exclusivity of technologies. Um, so you alluded earlier to the Council of the Indies, uh, this kind of agency that dealt with affairs in America for the crown. Um, can you explain the emergence of this council? Um, when did it come into being and why? So for a very long time in um, Spanish medieval history, the court of the king was just this group of family members and jesters and stablemen and doormen and various assistants. And the people placed the role of the um, the supreme justice in, 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 the, in the role of the king. As time went on, it became clear that the king wasn't always a good decision maker and didn't always have the time to weigh the 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 documents carefully and 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 didn't know enough about uh, the law to even make decisions it was it was likely that the king ruling the show alone would would actually cause a lot of chaos so in the 1370s you get after this major military defeat in which the portuguese army pretty much defeats and kills almost all of the Spanish nobility. Um, the, the, a, a certain um, petition is presented to, to the king, and then the king accepts, and the conditions are that now there'll be a group of ministers who advise the king in everything. So, you know, we fast forward to 1492. The, the people that which uh, Columbus approaches are the, the Royal Council of Castile. Now, when the New World... Um, you know, there's the, there's the whole um, collision and, you know, Columbus uh, supposedly finds India and all this stuff. The, the, the A group of specialists pops up inside the council, uh, and, which was called the Junta de Indias. Um, it's particularly clear by the 1510s and 1520s that there's a group of people inside the Council of Castile that are overseeing specifically the weird, um, unheard of stuff from the New World. Now, what happens is that was during the reign of the Catholic kings. The Catholic kings passed the, the monarchy to the Habsburgs. And when the Habsburgs come to Spain, um, they make everybody mad by appointing all these other Europeans to important positions, by being very imposing, by acting like Spain is 
um, second fiddle to um, these other Western European countries. What happens is there's a big old revolt, the Comunero revolt. And when, when um, the Habsburg king, Charles V, finally puts down the revolt, uh, one of the suggestions, one of the, the, the requests is that these councils' powers be increased and that they be Spanish. And so there's a multiplication of councils in the 1520s. And one of the councils is the Council of the Indies. It's actually um, an Italian uh, Piedmontese uh, theorist named Mercurino di Gattinara who kickstarts this council says we need to give people more access to the king. People are complaining that we don't have enough, that their petitions aren't being heard. We need more councils. And one of those councils is going to be the Council of the Indies. And that means that it's going to be very official by 1524, even though some people argue that it was already in motion by 1523. Now, um, the Council itself went under a series of reforms in the 16th century, presumably in many ways as a response to an increasingly large and diverse empire in America. Um, can you tell me about these reforms that were undertaken? Um, was the reform just in response to the petition and response system, or were there other more kind of fundamental issues of governance? So, yeah, that's a, a complicated question. Um, one of the major problems that the crown confronted, and it already discovered this in the 1510s and 1520s, was that if ministers are accepting bribes, the whole system is broken. And it was not acceptable for, um, we, we think of the early modern periods of time in which gift giving is acceptable and all these sorts of things, but most people did not consider that to be okay as far as the Council of the Indies went. Ministers were supposed to be impartial, as impartial as possible. So what happens in the 1540s is the conquistadors are getting very anxious that maybe the crown will take away their Indian tribute, and they start to bribe ministers. And there are some other problems which we don't know about, because, but we know that um, the crown launched an investigation into the Council of the Indies, and in 1524 and 1523, it issues a series of new guidelines for the council that expand its uh, personnel, and make uh, the separation between justicia, gobierno, and gracia very clear. And also there's a kind of growing separation between vassals and the council. So it's much harder to go in person and talk to ministers. Um, things are increasingly by paper, which for historians is good because that means that we can track the decision-making process better after these 1542-1543 reforms. Now, this happens again in, the, in 1567 because a few years before, King Philip had said, let's make the Madrid the permanent capital of the empire. It used to be that he moved everywhere and he, he would live in different cities for different periods of time. Now, that was a great idea because it allowed the council to be bigger, more organized. It had better archives. It had more desk space and they weren't always moving around. So they were more efficient. But it also meant that vassals could move to Madrid and become real good friends with council ministers. And there was a whole secret network of people giving gifts to the wives of the ministers, uh, indigenous, you know, um, gold in the form of parrots and other things. And we know that they were, that these vassals were infiltrating the Council of the Indies. So this investigator named Juan de Obando, who's very famous, um, lays down a new series of laws in 1571 which make the distance between vassals and the council quite formal and quite strict. It's very hard to, to get a word in at the council. Almost everything is now paper-based. And 
Um, once again, the responsibilities of the um, people involved are very clear. So at this point, we really know how the council works because its instructions are so strict. And this, this uh, Juan de Ovando, um, how do you uh, go about actually implementing reform? And how successful were his attempts, in, in your opinion? So Ovando um, is a very, very capable bureaucrat. He might be actually one of the best statesmen ever to have any position in the Spanish Empire. He had very broad ideas about religious reform, about um, uh, scientific reform, about um, knowledge reform, uh, all sorts of things. He really wanted to turn the council into a less responsive institution in the sense that he wanted it to be more um, factually informed. They didn't really have an archive until this point. Uh, they only had an archive of their of their laws. They didn't have a factual archive. Um, and also, uh, the laws were a mess at this point because it's, it's the 1570s. And Obando, when he, as he's investigating, he realizes that the ministers themselves don't know which policies they've issued because there's just too many of them. There's tens of thousands of important administrative principles and almost maybe 100,000 if you include uh, privileges. So when the king makes him president of the Council of the Indies and he starts to implement these reforms, he starts to kind of systematize everything and he starts to say, okay, we have to have a very clear idea of what our what our rules are for Indians. What are our rules for Spaniards? What are our rules for bishops? What are our rules for viceroys? And he tries to get that done, but he dies in 1575. And it's, you know, you have to wonder as a historian um, what would have happened because there's a lot of kind of mediocre people who appear after him who are not as capable of turning the council into an organized, um, systematic, uh, fact-based administrative um, entity. Instead, it, it, it kind of gets stuck in 1575. Um, one of the things that, that does eventually happen is the council issues printed books of their laws, which helps a lot to systematize the petition and response system. Um, another thing that um, happens in the 1580s after Ovando's death, which were partly inspired by him as the king, decides that he has to be, have better information about specific crises. And, and for example, military crises with pirates, financial crises, um, having to do, deal with Spanish debt. And then in, this is the only, this is kind of the, Ovando's greatest achievement in a way is pushing the council towards becoming specialized in certain fields of knowledge. And when the king in the 1580s, um, gets together a special military committee and a special financial committee, you see the king trying to become knowledgeable and ministers trying to become truly knowledgeable about things in the 80s. So in the end, Ovando dies, but he does leave a little bit of a legacy. Um, however, I would say that at least as far as the council's concerned, he only fixes it halfway. So... Um... How did the petitioning system fare then after reforms? Um, and when do we actually see the end of this petition and response system? So between about 1570 and 1600, the system changes partly because of the piracy issue, slowing down petitions. It increases in numbers because the empire is expanding. And at the same time, the rise of these special committees um, has both slowed down the empire, but it's given the Council of the Indies a little bit more knowledge about um, 
its affairs, it's specializing in military stuff, it's specializing in financial stuff. Not always successfully, but they're trying, and they're building up a, uh, this is very important, they're building up a factual database inside the Council of the Indies of good petitions, and they're holding on to those, and sometimes they're fact-checking new petitions against old petitions, and we know that from the marginal comments. Now, um, what happens when King Philip II dies in 1598 is he passes on uh, his rule to his son, King Philip III, who has been considered a rather mediocre ruler at best. Really, maybe what the problem was, what these committees had taken over, the role of the, the, role of the king in a way. Um, and, and we have to remember that the Council of the Indies is not that one of those committees. So there are these super powerful subcommittees not councils, but kind of mini councils, they're going to play a bigger role in the 1600s and beyond in a way that I don't think, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure how it all works. And this ends up producing the valido system where there's a, an elite counselor whispering into the king's ear at all time as the kind of master committee member. And that changes how decrees are made. De the, the number of decrees actually expands after 1598, but I would say from what I've read, the most fundamental decrees, the most fundamental gobierno decrees happened before. So what you get is a lot of smaller decrees, I would say, and it's a lot more. Four or five times more decrees are coming out of the council. Now, um, this is, uh, you know, we're going to have to um, have a lot more research into what happens after 1600 in the petitioning system. Um we know a lot about how the council changed, how its structures changed, but I don't know if I can say, for example, if, um, you know, exactly what the transformations were after that point. So is there any sense that this system was replicated by the English, the French or the Dutch, or indeed the Portuguese, um, in their respective endeavors overseas? And that's a really good question. Um, all of these different um, empires had a variation of the petition and response system. Um, I know that Richard Ross has looked at the British case and shown that um, British colonists didn't communicate with the crown very often at all, um, which is a very interesting contrast with the Spanish Empire, where everyone sought to communicate with the king, even though it was so far away. And it was honestly kind of a pain in the neck to be counting on a response. So the British have a system in which local authorities take a far bigger role than the monarch. And as for Parliament, I'm not quite sure. And that's a really interesting question. Um, I know that also in the Dutch case, um, I'm in contact with uh, a historian, Jogis uh, van der Tol, who is studying the Dutch colonial case, and it works in a similar way in which people send their petitions to um, these private companies, and I'm guessing also uh, the Republic, to request um, new measures. So, so that's happening there too, probably on a far lesser scale since there were far fewer Dutch subjects. Um, now though the Portuguese case is really fascinating because, um, as we've discussed, it was a messy system, uh, in the 1500s the the Portuguese hadn't really consolidated a very efficient council as far as we know. Um, and of course, King Philip, uh, merges Spain and Portugal in 1580. And there's an effort to replicate the Council of the Indies in Lisbon. And that's something that um, Graça Almeida Borges is working on. And of course, uh, you are also 
researching for the history of science. Um, but my impression is that overall, comparatively, the Spanish system is the most robust by far and the most inclusive. Those, that, those are my two big takeaways from that. So to revisit then what we discussed at the beginning of this interview, um, how do you think these petitions and the marketplace of letters that they created um, can challenge the more dominant narratives that exist in the intellectual historiography of empire? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of different directions that that people will be able to take this. Um, for example, um, we're seeing um, the expansion of the notion of the legislator, I think. We're, we're finding that sometimes petitioners kind of act as legislators and that they're phrasing these decrees. That's one important thing. Another important thing is we can say that racial formations are happening from the bottom up, not from a rational group of people in a, on a committee. Rather, it's coming from uh, countless proposals, and that is going to, to help broaden how we study these topics. Um, intellectually speaking, we also see that we can now count Indians and mulatos and, and black women and Indian women and a whole bunch of other people who don't often get a chapter in the story um, as thinkers. They're thinking, they're thinking of reforms, they're thinking of new ways to structure the empire. They're thinking about new ways to structure their communities. And um, that's going to, um, I think if we re if we expand the notion of what intellectual means to include these people, then that's going to be a breakthrough. I think that um, the notion of um, needing to explore state power only in terms of resistance and revolt is going to, you know, we're going to get a lot more nuance. Of course, there were revolts, but now we understand that there's this very responsive system. And this helps us understand also the decision making, the intellectual um, calculus of when do you fight or when do you uh, adapt, when do you petition and all of that. Um, and then there's other stuff, you know, the gracias system of petitioning oftentimes hearkened indigenous peoples to write histories of their communities, establishing their merits. And so the gracia system in particular tends to point Spaniards and Indians and mestizos towards studying ancient history. And it's not a coincidence that uh, historians of the time like Garcilaso, uh, El Inca Garcilaso de la Vega, is going to petition for a pension as he hands his book to the king. He says, hey, I have done your military service as you requested, but also here are these great books could I please have 500 pesos pension, please? And so the Gracia produces uh, an impetus for people to engage in intellectual culture as well. Um, there's a lot of directions that this can be taken in the future, I feel. Which brings us naturally to our final question then. Uh, what further work do you think remains to be done on this? Um, well, I'll give a, an advance of what one of the things I'm doing with this. I'm going to be charting in the long term. It's a project I've been working on uh, it was actually my original dissertation, is identifying which people at which moments um, were the petitioners behind each law on mestizos at all different levels of imperial legislation. It is not what people expect at all. I would say maybe 50% indigenous. And so that's one field. You can start saying, okay, indigenous women accounted for 17% of all policies on mestizos. And... Um, 
that's not reflected at the moment in the historiography. Um, and anything, could, you can do that with anything, any institution, any concept, you can study it in a new way by following it from the bottom up. And sometimes these petitions provide a lot of really rich insight into why this person would want this that don't appear in the decree. They've been scraped from the decree and just the proposal itself, the circumstances are in the, in the final product. So um, another thing that people could do is do um, meta statistical analysis of all this stuff. Where were people petitioning? When? Um, you know, how many different groups of people uh, won the different decrees is a massive question. And there's a historian, John uh, Gillison from Belgium, who did this in, in 1958 with all of the Belgian decrees, tens of thousands of them. And he broke it down and, you know, he found that um, tradesmen dominated legislation and that universities dominated legislation and, and things like that, which he didn't ultimately carry those conclusions forward to, to say, well, then who's running the empire? But um, he did do the statistics for us. And that's something that could provide a lot of breakthroughs far beyond what my research is doing, because I'm only looking at tracing the system and providing a methodology for people to understand it. Um, but I haven't yet uh, attempted a statistical analysis of the 110,000 and more. So there's a lot more work to be done. Adrian Masters, thank you very much. And thank you so much, too. It's been great.